This podcast was recorded on the date indicated with the link. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of Doubleline Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. Doubleline has no obligation to provide updates or changes. Welcome to the Sherman Show. I am Jeff Sherman, along with my co-host, Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And today is April 25th, 2022. And we are visited by a very special guest, none other than Zoltan Ojar. Uh, Zoltan is a managing director at Credit Suisse. Um, he's in the investment strategy and research department. Prior to joining Credit Suisse back in 2015, which seems like eons ago uh, to those that live in the markets, uh, he was a senior advisor to the U.S. Department of Treasury. So if there's anyone out there that can really tell us about what's going on in financial markets and the plumbing today, it is definitely Mr. Pojar. So welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, and I guess I, I kind of sold you a little short too. Didn't even bring up your experience at the when you were at the Federal Reserve in New York or with you know, the IMF. So all things monetary policy runs through Zoltan. So uh -huh. um, you know, so that's what I want to start with. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about your path and how you got to where you are today and the evolution of your career going from, you know, working in you know, kind of the banking system to working for a bank. So maybe you can give us some uh, brief history there. Yes. Well, th that's a, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, I'm, I'm originally from Hungary. So I, I started my, my education there. My first macro class I took in 1997. Uh, so this is, you know, the Southeast Asian financial crisis. And, um, you know, I didn't understand anything about anything back then. But I thought that, you know, these bailout packages that the IMF was, uh, was handing out in 97 was just very interesting. So I think that's where my initial interest in finance, banking, plumbing, macro came from. And then, you know, I, 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 uh, I did a lot of uh, study overseas. I, I got an MBA from South Korea. Uh, I had a, a professor, an, an ex-banker, uh, US uh, uh, gentleman uh, by the name of David Bailing, who retired to teach there, uh, who, who was instrumental in my education in understanding, in my education, in, in, you know, the appreciation of balance sheets. Um, I mean, I don't know how, 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 you know, detailed you want me to, uh, do this, but I'll, I'll, I'll just give you, because I think it's important for anyone who listens, you know, he, he, he taught corporate valuation, but he said, if you want to take my corporate valuation classes, you need to first take an accounting class from me. And you will only be able to pass that class. If you understand how balance sheets and income statements and cash flow statements talk to each other. So, you know, that's kind of my, my background. It's not, you know, macro theory and micro and, and all this stuff, but, but, you know, very strong appreciation um, of, the, of, of the accounting side of things. And then after, after I got my MBA in Korea, I ended up working as my first job as a macroeconomist for uh, Mark Zandi, who also had a very big, uh, you know, focus on household balance sheets and home equity withdrawal, you know, back, back this is like, you know, early to mid 2000s. And, and Zoltan, uh, yes. Mark is an alum, alumnus of the Sherman Show as well. So that's, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. But you know, so so Mark, Mark again, like 
that yeah, I understand what Mark is talking about because balance sheets matter. Of course, I I, I had that in my in my uh, graduate studies, and so you know he he was I think one of the few economists who was looking at you know the the balance sheet aspects of how the whole home equity withdrawal process works and the household cash flows concept that you need to look at things more than just you know wages and salaries, but you also need to look at household cash flows that come from from uh, liquefying your home equity. And then actually uh, back in 07, 08, you know, Mark uh, was asked to write a book. He did write a book. I think the title is Financial Shock. Uh, this, I think it's one of the first books about the, uh, the mortgage crisis back then. And um, uh, I was his right hand uh, for, for, for six or seven years. He asked me to, you know, uh, do some research for him on CDOs and SIBs, uh, some of this plumbing stuff. And so out of that little work, which you know, some of it he used for his book, uh, came this uh, paper that I wrote called the, the Rise and Fall of the Shadow Banking System, which you know, at the time I was looking to kind of change jobs and you know, go from here to there. And I sent it to, to, to a number of people, uh, you know, John Paulson, Bill Ackman, and Bill Dudley. Uh, I've met all of them. And then basically the, the, the job offer I ultimately took from Bill Dudley because you know, he said, you know, the, the housing plumbing market is an implosion. There's no one on my desk who understands any of this stuff. Do you want to come work for me? And I said, of course, well, it's a crisis and it's public service. So, so you, I think, you know, I never regretted it, you know, take, taking, taking that choice. And then, you know, during, during the 08 years, I was uh, basically tasked with, uh, you know, gathering market intelligence about securitized funding markets, you know, the SIBs, the CDOs, the conduits, and, you know, first he did the firefighting, uh, uh, you know, I joined the Fed two weeks before uh, Lehman. Um, and then, you know, everybody got busy building the Telf facility and a bunch of other things. And then when the crisis died down, you know, I, I basically mapped out the shadow banking system as I understood it. And, you know, then came this big paper on shadow banking. And I think that was my kind of path down uh, plumbing. And, um, you know, I, I, did, uh, I did spend a number of years uh, in, in the public sector writing a lot about plumbing. And it wasn't until, you know, James Sweeney, who was back then chief economist at, uh, at uh, Credit Suisse, who has, follow, who has been following my work and, and kind of struck up a, a friendship, he said, why don't you come and join CS to see if you could commercialize uh, some of this knowledge and just build out some product around all this. And, I wasn't exactly sure what I was going to do at CS, but you know, he, here we are today, talking about plumbing. Yeah, no, and and I never want to be insulting when talking about the plumbing, because but I, I know it's very important. It's very I, important. I like yes. People, I like to tell people in markets though that like you know fundamentals, you know they'll come home to roost. They're a way of analyzing things. Technicals kind of tell you when to get in and out but never ever ignore money flow, but either in yes. or out, right? And cause that is a really big driver of price. That's right. And so, and so it's more like you're a vascular surgeon in financial <laughs> markets, if, if that sounds fancier. It does sound fancier. Um, you know, I could probably use some of that help too, but let's, let, let's talk about uh, policies. Cause you, you were at the root of this back in 08 or you were helping, you know, uh, mm -hmm. navigate through it. So let's talk about what just happened in the pandemic two years ago. And let's, let's rewind the clock to 2020 and let's talk about the, re, the, the response mechanism this time because a lot of those extraordinary measures we saw back in 08 
came out of the gate. They were the number one parts of the toolkit. And so mm -hmm. we saw corporate credit backstops. We saw it yep. even deeper. We saw them buying high yield bonds, um, changing, you know, the, the reserve ratio requirements got lowered, um, yep. repo facilities. So what, what did your, what was your first take on how the response mechanism was? Do you think there was lessons learned? Do you think it was appropriate? And then let's talk about what that sets up for us in 2022. Okay, so March 2020, I think the financial system was in a completely different position because if you remember, this is, um, you know, this is just after the repo market broke in September of um, 2019, I believe it was, right? Yep. So this is when we have massive positions that have accumulated. Was it, it was September of, eight, of 18, right? It was 2018. September of 18. And then, and then I think, um, um, yeah, time flies. Um, but anyway, the Fed was, you know, just, just kind of uh, foaming the system with like extra liquidity, right? They, they started to, to, to they, they restarted bill purchases, right? So you were kind of putting liquidity back into, into the system to, to kind of, get us farther from this lowest comfortable level of reserves at which, you know, the banking system was, and you just kind of, you know, put, put more liquidity back into the system. And we were doing that uh, in, in a, at a measured pace. And then something like um, COVID-19 um, uh, came along, which basically generated a massive liquidity shock uh, in the system, which manifested itself two ways. Number one, um, Number one, um, credit lines were drawn everywhere in the world across all industries at the same time um, uh, because you know supply chains were payments changing reserve reverse and so and so when when the virus uh, forced many parts of the world to be shut down, production basically stopped and, and all the corporations had to take down credit lines. All those credit lines come from banks and the banks need to fund them. And, uh, you know, this is just a, a liquidity shock on a scale that banks couldn't really uh, deal with on their own. So they needed to get that help from central banks, both in terms of getting the liquidity uh, through, through, uh, through emergency lending facilities and also exempting uh, the, the balance sheets of banks from, from certain ratios. And then the other issue was that, you know, we had a very large bond basis position that accumulated in the financial system and every RV fund and every every uh, uh, bond themed trader was basically long the bond, short the future and funded it in the repo market. And when the banks had to fund the corporations on the margin, uh, they lent less in the repo market on the margin. And so the RV funds were uh, the ones having a liquidity problem. And so that's basically the genesis of why the Fed had to do uh, you know, massive lending through, through the repo facility and then ultimately a massive round of QE. So basically, you had to buy out uh, a bunch of RV fronts from their, from, a, from their levered bond basis positions. So that's them. And when you look at what happened today, um, I think there, there's, there's, there's a couple of you know, knee-jerk conclusions from this, one of which is, well, thank God that we had such a massive round of QE during the two years before the war broke out, because had we had this in an environment where the banking system was close to the lowest comfortable level of reserves too. I think you know the commodity trading world and, and, the, and the whole commodity derivative complex would have had a liquidity problem that the banks would not have been able to uh, paper over. 
uh, without help from the Fed. Okay, so basically one big difference between what happened in, in 2020 and 2022 is that the system basically was coming into the, the shock that has occurred with far more liquidity than we had back then. And, and basically so far that took, uh, took the, uh, the edge of, uh, of, of the current crisis that, that's unfolding. Okay, so you, you focus a lot on liquidity and you're talking about how the Fed was essentially pumping liquidity into the market by expanding the balance sheet mm -hmm. and purchasing securities. So let's talk about now the other direction. Here we are two years later, um, the Fed's about to embark on what we typically call around here, double barrel tightening, right? The, mm -hmm. the concept that you're going to raise rates plus you're going to um, yep. reduce liquidity from the market from, from quantitative tightening or unwinding the balance sheet. So mm -hmm. what do you think about liquidity? Were lessons learned last time? Do you think we could still feel similar repercussions as the Fed embarks on QT? Um, how are you thinking about the liquidity profile of the markets today? And then further, as the Fed announces QT, which is widely expected yeah. uh, next week, what happens from there from a liquidity standpoint? And then lastly, what should people be monitoring to, to watch mm. these signs of ill liquidity or less liquidity within markets? Yes. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, there is, uh, there's, many, there's many moving parts to, to, to the liquidity question. Uh, I would say there, there's, there's my thinking about QT before the war and after the war, um, you know, pre-Ukraine, post-Ukraine. Before, before the war, you know, I, I, I did write a few pieces about QT and how to think about it. And, and basically, you know, the framing there was there is ugly QT and beautiful QT. There is active QT and passive QT. Yep. You know, this ugly versus, versus beautiful, you know, the question about QT is always, you know, the Fed buys less, who's going to buy it? But the Fed doesn't. And, you know, there the answer is it's either some real money account that has the money or it's some levered account that on the margin has to borrow in order to, to, to buy the treasuries that the Fed no longer buys. And so in, in that sense, you know, QT, you know, the Fed is just a massive marginal buyer when it does QE and then it and turns- a price agnostic in, buyer nonetheless. Price agnostic, exactly. And then when it comes to QT, you know, the, the dominant marginal buyer steps away and then we need to find another marginal buyer. And who are those marginal buyers? Um, it, foreign central banks, bank portfolios, uh, FX hedged buyers the world over, and bond RV funds. Okay, and then you know bond funds if equities fall a lot, and you know people go out of equities and into bonds, and then you just have this natural flow of money. But apart from that, all these other players basically have to fund on the margin to buy treasuries. If you're a foreign central bank, you're going to be printing your own currency because you want to weaken it. Uh, and then you buy treasuries in the process. If you are a bank portfolio, you know, you will be spending your reserves that, that you have at the Fed and, and swap it for treasuries. If you are an FX hedge buyer, you're going to be swapping yen for dollars to buy treasuries. And if you're an RV fund, you know, you just spend whatever little cash you have, um, buy the bond, and then you repo that bond to get your, your liquidity level back to where you started from. So that's basically the basic setup. Um, and and you know the, the question of uh, of which of these uh, uh, players are going to be big dominant buyers, uh, I think changed a lot 
over the course uh, of the past two months. Before the war, I would have said that you know the banks are going to be prominent buyers simply because they have a lot of liquidity and, and, and a lot of excess reserves to spend. And uh, why not swap some of that liquidity for, for treasuries and add some to, to, to duration? We've certainly seen a big wave of bank purchases during the fourth quarter uh, of, of last year. That was just a phenomenal run. I think uh, you know, banks bought something like two, $300 billion of treasuries. And then coming into the first quarter, and, and especially since the war, I mean, the bond market is in a completely different environment. So, you know, the hiking cycle is way more aggressive, what we are pricing. Uh, I think the inflation outlook is way more uncertain. Um, and, you know, uh, we are in a bond bear market where nobody really wants to, to buy duration or not, not unless, you know, yields get to a certain, certain level. So to me, that means, and, and by the way, when you listen to, to, the, to the latest round of bank earnings calls um, and you listen to what, what, uh, what some of the big, big uh, bank CFOs and CEOs have said, you know, some banks said that basically we have no interest in adding uh, bonds to our liquidity portfolio just to earn a few extra uh, uh, basis points. So that to me means that the bank portfolios are probably not going to be big buyers of treasuries into QT. Um, and there's, there's a number of reasons for that. Do, do you mind if you go through those, through oh, those reasons? Okay. I think it's helpful so, to understand what they are. Yes. So, so, so a couple of things here. So number one, you know, when you think about bank HQLA portfolios, I mean, it's either reserves at the fed or, or treasuries and, and, and mortgages, uh, you know, this question of available for sale or hold to maturity is one aspect of it and you know you, you de depending on on how you book these securities you know if it's hdm it doesn't hit your income statement if it's available for sale it's going to hit your income statement but apart from those details like all these banks have to provide a daily liquidity snapshot to their regulators right so in a bond bear market the bonds the bonds are dropping in value right so you have one type of hqla bonds which are falling in value reserves are not so that's definitely going to be one incentive not to part with your reserves because, um, uh, because you don't want to add to, to all these bonds that are falling in value. Some of these banks are going to have these treasuries on asset swap, which, which helps on the margin. But we know that banks don't buy treasuries only on asset swap. So there is some unswapped uh, uh, holdings there too, on which they are taking mark to market losses. Very interesting piece of data for you guys, by the way, is that the Fed uh, had this, has this weekly age eight release where they show the mark to market losses on, um, on available for sale treasury securities. Um, and the, the publication of the data series got discontinued two weeks ago. <laughs> and two weeks ago was precisely when uh, the, 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 the market value drop of these available for sale treasury and mortgage-backed securities reached the most negative point since 2008. So basically, we don't get these numbers anymore, but rest assured, you know, the value of these treasuries is, is, is probably uh, continuing to drop uh, as we speak. So that's, that's one thing. The second thing, you know, the banks also, because of the, the Basel regulations, they've been issuing a lot of uh, uh, debt instruments, you know, usually fixed coupons, but then they swap it to floating. When interest rates are doing what they are doing now, all those, uh, all those debt instruments they issued swap to floating that basically drains uh, their liquidity position, right? Because that's, uh, that's a swap on which you have to pay, um, uh, pay cash. And then the third most important thing uh, is we will see uh, how the retail depositors are going to behave in this hiking cycle because 
there's three things you need to keep in mind. The hiking cycle is extremely aggressive by historical standards. We're going to hike a lot in a very short span of time, number one. Number two, all this is happening in a very high inflation environment where the average retail investor, I believe, will care about that marginal 25, 50, 100 basis points that they will make in a money fund as opposed to staying in a bank deposit that pays zero. And also, you know, barriers to kind of move money around from a bank deposit to a money fund share, because we can do it all on our iPhones, has never been lower. Uh, so I think there is a, there's a good chance that uh, a lot of retail deposits that are meant to be sticky are going to migrate over to retail money funds um, as the hiking cycle really gets underway, which is something that you need to care about as a bank, because um, for every retail deposit, remember, these are the deposits that are meant to be sticky and they are not supposed to move around. These are not non-operating deposits or anything. So, so they are supposed to stay where they are. Because they are supposed to be sticky, you only keep five cents against each dollar of retail deposits in, in HQLA. But when these retail deposits leave, if a dollar leaves, they will take a dollar of HQLA with them, right? So that does a lot of damage to your liquidity coverage ratios. But you guys probably know that you know when you look at the, the bank operating subsidiary level LCRs at the large banks, I mean, these LCRs are something like 170, 180% uh, at some of these banks. So they have a lot of excess liquidity, which is all great, but it means that all this excess liquidity can slip away very quickly if the wrong kind of deposits move. And I think the fact that some of these bank portfolios are sounding defensive and they are not that eager to add uh, uh, too much to, um, to, to, their, to their duration exposure, I think has to do with some of these mechanical issues, which is all just you know, managing your HPLA portfolio and managing your bank balance sheet. And then I would add a fourth um, aspect too, which is everything that's happening uh, in, in the commodity market where basically prices have spiked um, and again, I'm not a commodity market expert, but you know, when you just look at the oil market and gas market casually, you probably are aware of risks where prices could spike. You know, if zero COVID in China ends and there is, you know, demand for oil on the margin, or you know, if uh, if if all the Russian oil fields get get shut down because there's no willing takers for Russian oil, or even uh, you know, uh, a variation on that thing. Maybe the Russians are going to be able to find some willing buyers, but then the willing buyers are going to be far away in Asia. And to get all the oil from the Baltics to Asia is going to require a lot of uh, very large crude carriers. But when you do the numbers, you actually find that there is a shortage of crude carriers to bring all that oil around. So whether, you know, oil is stuck in the ground or whether it has to be moved around, you will, you will end up with bottlenecks. So, you know, the, the system is exposed to big price spikes and we've seen what these commodity price spikes uh, can cause in terms of credit demand uh, for for commodity traders a couple of weeks ago and all these commodity traders basically feed off of bank credit lines uh, when they need to scramble for cash to be able to get the money to, to pay margin and so you know there is large pockets of liquidity needs in the world commodity producers commodity consumers commodity traders that are basically latching onto the banks as we speak, and the banks need to kind of write those checks as well. So just as the HQLA portfolio is more complicated to manage and liquidity is harder to kind of handicap, is it gonna go, uh, or are or, 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 or deposits going to migrate on my liability side, or 
too many customers going to come and take credit lines from me. I think from a bank's perspective, things are just much more complicated to manage. So that ultimately eliminates the bank portfolios as, as big buyers of, uh, of treasuries into, into, into this episode of QT. Um, I'll stop there for, for a second because I feel like I've been for too long. Um, yeah, no, that's that's great, Zoltan. There's, to, yeah. Oh uh, no, we definitely want to bring it back uh, uh, to commodities in a bit, and just the impact of that the the war has had on supply chains and currencies around commodities as well. But you know, one of the terms that you've mentioned a few times now, you've mentioned the lowest comfortable level of reserves. Yeah. And, you know, tying it back to the banks here, it's just. It, it seems most of us focus on that headline number, right? The, the total balance sheet and how much the, yes. the, the Fed can unwind. But really, it's, it's about how much, what the level of bank reserves uh, yes. that the banks are indicating that they need to maintain in order to continue providing liquidity to the system. Mm -hmm. So um, could you go a little bit into that? Because I do think that is a big crux to the question of how they're going to manage, how the Fed's going to manage QT with you know, the, the banks on the other end. Yes. Um, so, so a, a, a couple of things here. Um, just, just to um, you know, frame frame the ideas here. You know, when you think about a bank with say five hundred billion dollars of reserves at the Fed, and you know how far they are from the lowest comfortable level of reserves. You know, five hundred billion dollars go way longer in an environment where commodity prices are stable, there's no wild spikes, you know, there's no, there's no disruption to, to the commodity derivative complex where the hiking cycle is kind of predictable and where the bond market is not in a bear mode like it is now, okay? When all these things that, that, are, that we just discussed are happening, I think you know, the, the, the value of that liquidity buffer is less, so maybe if 300 of the 500 was excess, i.e. above your lowest comfortable level of reserves, maybe only 150 uh, of that is, is above your lowest comfortable level of reserves. And so th things, are, things are tighter, uh, tighter than you think. Um, it is also true that there is a ton of money in the reverse repo facility, right? So on the margin, whoever is going to buy uh, those treasury securities. I think it's not going to be the banks, but it's going to be mostly RV funds, uh, bond RV funds. Um, uh, but you know, those RV funds are going to need swap spreads that are way tighter than than what swap spreads are are, are today. Is just going to bring them in as the incentive to to, to buy these bonds and short the future and fund everything in the repo market. So I think you know that's where all the heavy lifting is going to occur. But but basically, if, if the banks get too close to this lowest comfortable level of reserves, and maybe they reach that level in September of this year uh, or something like that, then you basically also have to contend with an environment where it's not only the Fed that's putting treasuries into the system and it's soaking up money in the, with, that's in the RRP facility, but also the banks are going to be tapping the home loan banks and they are going to be borrowing money uh, uh, via advances. And then the home loan banks are going to have to issue floating rate notes to basically fund their growing advance books. Um, and so, you know, that supply of treasuries and the supply of duration is going to multiply. It's not going to be just the Fed. It's going to be the home loan banks as well because, because the banks need funding on the margin. The, the other risk, which I find admirable, uh, is actually no one seems to think about. I mean, we always think about QT in terms of all the duration that's going to be put back by the Fed into the market. 
but we don't really think about tail risks around maybe other central banks um, are going to be trimming their treasury exposures on the margin too, you know, either before QT uh, commences or as, Q as QT by the Fed commences. And so that $100 billion a month uh, number that we are thinking about can very easily become 120, 130. And to give you a good historical precedent, I mean, when, when the Central Bank of Russia sold out of all its treasury securities back in 2018, that was at the eve of the original QT program of the Fed. You know, so Russia basically sold everything uh, just before QT started. And if you, you know, think about any central bank that would probably be interested in trimming you know, uh, their, their duration exposure or so, you know, trim, trim their treasury exposure a little bit, you know, whether it's uh, uh, the PBOC or, or the Saudis or you know, whoever, um, I think that could happen uh, in tandem with QT by the Fed. So 100 billion a month, in duration supply, I would say it's probably the minimum and the floor. Uh, uh, th that's the way I would think about it. And so those numbers can actually get bigger. All right. So on that front, now, now you've painted a picture where it could be worse at that marginal kind of supply in the marketplace. Identify who, who the marginal buyers become at this point. And is it just a price level? Is there a yield target you think that happens? Like, um, or is this just continued carnage for what's been the worst bond market we've seen in the first four months of any calendar year? Yeah, I mean, I mean, look, we've had uh, we've had a very bad uh, run in, uh, in in the bond market for sure. Uh, again, if uh, if I am right about this, and really the only marginal buyer out there is going to be some you know bond basis trader that's going to want a much uh, a much uh, wider spread that they can harvest. Uh, I think um, I think uh, QT goes extremely bad and and i mean you know how how the mechanics here are which is that you know the fed doesn't get given all these treasuries after auctions and then the auction sizes are going to get um bigger and then you'll just have to find uh that 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 marginal buyer that you know when, when we when we went through that list of foreign central banks bank portfolios fx hedged buyers rv funds again i think you know Foreign central banks are probably not going to be big buyers. Uh, banks, we just went through all the reasons why the banks won't be uh, big buyers. Um, you know, if you think about your average Japanese FX hedge buyer, uh, they tend not to buy into bond market ruts. You know, they like to buy uh, rallies in, in 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 bond markets, and so I think that's that leaves us with uh, the bond RV uh, basis trader. And, and I think prices will have to adjust there quite a bit and treasuries have to cheapen a lot relative to OIS to kind of bring those, uh, to bring those uh, uh, players in, into the fold. Into the game. Well, so on that note too, like what are some of the indicators that we can look at before? I mean, because previously the funding stress showed up in the repo facility. Mm -hmm. The Fed's tried to address that with standing repo now, right? Yeah. Um, you know, so what are some of the indicators? I said you mentioned some of the forward yep. indicators, well, to OIS. Like, mm -hmm. how can someone kind of keep an eye on this who's not a, a bond nerd like ourselves here yeah. and has the ability, you know, where they can, they can see where the stress is building in the marketplace? Yes, look, uh, repo is not going to be the market that's going to break this time because, you know, it's never the market that broke before. So it, it's going to be something else. I'll, I'll tell you what I think it's going to be. Uh, but before we get there, I mean, I think there, there is a, from, from the way I understand things, and, and I could be wrong, but I think there is, there's always a certain kind of, you know, 
dance to all this and then that dance is going to leave a footprint which is you know dealer inventories are going to get backed up and then you know the dealers are going to buy the treasuries and then they uh, are long the bond and short the future and fund, fund it in the repo market you know they are going to do a lot of that probably more than they did during 2018 2019 um, and then balance sheets are going to get full and then they are going to recycle these positions to the to the rv hedge fund community and then the rv funds are going to have their sponsored repo and they're going to be able to do a lot of this stuff and again there is more than a trillion and a half of cash in the reverse repo facility to be soaked up before uh, you know, pressures in the repo market got to a point where the Fed has to actively step in and, and inject liquidity with the standing repo facility. So we are about a year and a couple months away from that point in time uh, because, you know, at 100 billion a month in, in, in a good case where nobody else sells uh, other than the Fed, um, you know, 100 billion a month over 12 months is 1.2 trillion. So you basically can exhaust a lot of this liquidity that's in the RRP facility by next summer. And, and, so, and so I think, you know, the telltale si signs of this is going to be, I mean, we, we all have our, you know, commodities in, in, in futures uh, uh, reports that, that we look at. We have, uh, you know, the FR2004 numbers where we can track dealer inventories and whatnot. And we will see in real time every day um, the, 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 the balances in the RRP facility. You know, if, if, if that liquidity is getting consumed, we will have a daily read on, 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 on the real time kind of funding needs associated with this bond, uh, with this bond basis trades. Um, I think the areas where I'm, where I'm concerned about in terms of what's the part of the funding market that can get gummed up. Um, again, you know, the context here is that liquidity is going to get removed. Um, and, you know, the banks themselves are probably going to have to fund at some point on the margin as well. I think, and I'm digging into this uh, as we speak, you know, the whole commodity derivative complex, because I think that's, that's just a very important area for all of us to do our homeworks on and, and to understand how commodity price moves drive banks uh, funding needs uh, or, you know, collapses in commodity prices, how those benefit banks from a, from a funding perspective. Again, I think, I think the tail risks in, in commodities land is spikes in gas prices and pr uh, spikes in, in oil prices and the, the liquidity and, uh, and funding requirements that those price spikes can trigger for the large American banks, which usually we tend to think of uh, in, 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 as, 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 type, as types of uh, you know, stability providers to the FX swap market or, or, or the treasury market. But basically, if the commodity markets get nasty for all sorts of, you know, geopolitical and, and logistical bottleneck issues, um, you know, instead of having those banks as, as a source of strength on the margin in funding markets, uh, they are going to fall on the other side of the coin and they are going to be uh, bidding for funding, uh, which is not something that we are familiar with because ever since Basel III was introduced and, you know, ever since 2015, you know, the, the large American banks were basically providers of funding on the margin. Uh, these large American banks are the biggest, you know, players in the commodity, uh, in the commodities world. Uh, they probably don't have to mention names. But again, I think it's just everyone's homework to basically dig deep, uh, you know, much like what we had to do with the shadow banking system back in 2008 to understand 
how you know credit lines between SIBs and CDOs can basically fall back on the banks. You know, the same way I think we need to do uh, a lot more digging and we need to understand a lot better how the commodity derivatives complex and bank funding needs interact. So that's that's one thing where I'm I'm certainly focused on at the moment. Because no, because because you know you have those liquidity issues potentially. And then the Fed is doing a very rapid removal of liquidity uh, from the system as we are doing that. And so you never fight the last war and history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. So you, you can see certain parts of the system that are going to need more liquidity, but liquidity is being removed. So we've seen that many years before. So I wanted to shift some uh, gears here a little bit to Zoltan to some of the things that we've been talking about and, and kind of piece them together with regards to, to Russia and then mm -hmm. the uh, the, the policies that have been coming out of the West, primarily yep. the, the G7. So yeah. given this context, there's a number of countries out there that are probably more closely allied with you know, or sympathetic mm -hmm. to Russia than they are of the West. So thinking about uh, reserve baskets, foreign reserve baskets, how does this change the composition of foreign reserve baskets, the U.S. dollars and perhaps the euro, you know, yeah. and, and, um, uh, their, their position within those baskets you, know, we, you also talked about how Russia back leading into 2018 and by 2018, they had uh -huh. eliminated their U.S. Treasury holdings to zero, yeah. increased the amount of gold. How does this yeah. all kind of fit in together? How has it allowed Russia to perhaps, has it allowed them to circumvent some of the, the sanctions? And how do you expect these composition of these baskets to, to look like going forward? Yes, yeah, so I think about like I, the yeah. next year, but maybe over, yes. over the next five over years. Over the next things. five years, exactly. So, mm -hmm. you know, this is this is not immediate, but it's inevitable. And I think some of the shifts have, have started already. Someone, a client actually just sent me a link to um, to a, a Bloomberg article. You know, the, the, the Central Bank of Israel, for example, uh, just added a 3% weight, uh, 40 renminbi in its, uh, in its FX basket. And they cut back uh, euros and... Um, and the dollar uh, a little bit, you know, so that's like a baby step uh, in this, in this, you know, reduced weight for the dollar and, and a bigger weight for renminbi and, and other currencies. Um, look, I think, uh, I think uh, one, th one thing that, that will come out of this, I think over the medium to long term is that um, uh, certain parts of the world, certainly if they are long commodities, so if you're a commodity exporter, you are going to be, uh, diversifying away from the dollar um, as, uh, as, a, as a means of payment that you accept for all the commodities that you sell to the rest of the world. Um, and, you know, probably the renminbi is going to uh, become a, a, a strong kind of uh, rival uh, in that sense to the dollar. I mean, we've been talking about that for a long time, but the way I tend to think about this is that, you know, China has done a lot of, again, cardiovascular work about uh, uh, RMB plumbing. And so that's just, you know, the infrastructure that you need to be able to scale the renminbi up uh, uh, on, on the global playing field. But again, I think you need catalysts like what have happened uh, uh, with around the war of Ukraine and, and freezing half a trillion dollars of FX reserves uh, of, the, of the largest commodity exporter in the world. So I think events like this are going to catalyze change. And, you know, we've seen headlines where, you know, the Russians are invoicing gas in renminbi, fine. Uh, the Saudis are thinking about invoicing dollar sales, uh, uh, oil sales to China in, in renminbi as opposed to U.S. dollars. 
uh, we've seen, you know, what the what the central bank of Israel is going to do with, you know, adding an, an RMB allocation to to their FX reserves. So little things like this, you know, you you basically you basically just start connecting the dots, and and then and then you start uh, and then you start tracking these flows over time. And I think, you know, when you look back a year, two year, three years from now, uh, these things are going to get substantial. Because certainly if we think about a world that's, you know, less globalized and we are doing a bit of deglobalization and we have to rearm and reshore and, 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 you know, rebuild stockpiles of everything and cut reliance on fossil fuels. I mean, all that is going to be very commodity intensive. So the world is going to consume a lot of uh, commodities to, 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 to pull that off. Those commodities are going to have to get paid for. Um, and I think people are going to, you know, pick and choose uh, what they are going to be uh, paid in. And that's just kind of a going forward flow basis. And then I think what's, what's far more important in the present context is if you are uh, a country that sits on a pile of FX reserves as we speak at the eve of QT, what are your incentives? Are you going to start to, you know, change your allocations on the margin already to kind of reduce from the current stockpile of reserves your, your reliance on dollars and buy gold, buy other commodities, you know, start start diversifying into RMB. I think I think these are all relevant questions now. And you know, all this data is lagged. So we don't really I think the latest big data that we have is for the end of February. So even that stuff is lagged. I don't think that any major changes we will see at the end of March, but you know, April, May. Uh, uh, and going forward, I think I think we should see some um, some some changes in these in these uh, invoicing trends and, and reserve allocations, which which is all very important, I guess, for demand for treasuries and and back end of the curve type dynamics, because you know it was the way we used to do things that everything is priced in dollars, and if you sell commodities and get dollars, you recycle those dollars into treasuries, and so if you break that cycle. And now you are going to invoice things in a different currency. Surpluses are going to start to accumulate in a, in a different currency, and you know we will eventually feel that uh, at auctions every week. Okay, uh, well, I gotta I gotta ask one more thing too because uh, I know a lot of people have heard your your thoughts on that with your Bretton Woods three yeah. three piece that made it, got a lot of got a lot of airplay, and I think rightfully yep. so. I mean, um, so on, on one other thing I want to touch on too mm -hmm. is. You know, you had said the, uh, there was a quote attributed to you that said, quote, mm. the yield curve has gone mad, unquote. Mm. And I yeah. think you were talking about the inversion of the yield curve. Can yeah. you expand on that comment? And also, what is your interpretation of the brief inversion we have and the slight steepness we have today? Well, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's, um, it's a little bit like, you know, these commodity curves are, are, are in backwardation too, you know, so it's like, spot is high and then and the, and then the future is 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 what it is i mean you know these these commodity curves if you listen to you know all the all the commodity intensity of, of deglobalization I mean, those curves should be steeper too you know what i what i meant about about the yield curve i mean we all understand these dynamics that you know there is this uh, very strong bit for duration on the back end from ldi type investors and you know pension funds that need to match assets and liabilities and you know now is a good time to to kind of do that you know what i meant to say with the with the yield curve inversion uh comments uh that i had was 
I mean, basically, we care about these inversions because, you know, it tends to be a signal where maybe the Fed is going to over tighten and there's going to be a recession. And then the next thing that they are going to do after that is going to cut rates. And so, you know, the inversion is kind of pricing future rate cuts, right? Something like that. And uh, I am not so sure that even if, uh, even if we have a, a massive um, slowdown, you know, that the Fed is going to have to respond to that with um, cutting interest rates, um, uh, simply because, you know, the inflation environment is not going to allow that. I think, you know, the Fed is going to have uh, 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 to keep interest rates high to make sure that inflation expectations don't get de-anchored. Um, and I think also, you know, one legacy of uh, March 2020 for me, at least, is that uh, once you have something bad that happens to the real economy, I think the fiscal fiscal response is going to be very, can be very rapid uh, and can be very muscular. Um, and if, you know, that's what it's going to come down to, I think, you know, fiscal response to bad economic outcomes as a result of sanctions and, uh, and everything, you know, can also be in the cards. And so that is going to mean uh, more supply of treasuries, not necessarily lower interest rates. And I think we also need to think, you know, one to two year term out, uh, you know, price controls and, and you know, if, if some of the commodity, you know, situation doesn't get uh, any better, uh, I think all these price control measures are going to require, you know, a fiscal response in, in, in many places. I mean, the SPR uh, and, the, and, the, and the release of oil from the SPR is a great, you know, near-term thing. But, I mean, the SPR can get empty and it's going to be very hard to, to refill the SPR if, uh, if a lot of um, uh, oil disappears um, um, from, from the market. So, you know, what do you do in an environment like that? I don't think that the Fed's uh, uh, is going to be in a position where you know an economic slowdown uh, is going to uh, is going to open the 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 path to to rate cuts. Probably fiscal is going to be a, a a very big part of the response too. And if that's the case, I guess you know the yield curve has has that bit wrong. Okay, well that's very helpful. So Zoltan, it's been a pleasure. Um, you know, I know we can talk for hours on this, uh, you know, you, you and I love this kind of stuff, but um, before we let you go, and we don't have a time constraint, we got to introduce you to Sam's favorite part of the show. So Sam? So Zoltan, my favorite part of the show is called Sherman Says. It's where I will offer a series of alternating prompts between uh, you and Jeff. Uh, to which I hope to get a concise top of mind answer back. One word if you can do it. If not, that's, uh, that's okay too. So let me give an example with Jeff getting the first prompt with New World Order. Mm, precipice. All right, over to you, Zoltan, with Behind the Curve. The Fed. All right, uh, Jeff, Cash. King for now. All right, back to you, Zoltan, with money markets. Calm, unless commodity prices spike. All right. Military spending. Egregious. All right, Zoltan, so the next one's for you with asset sales. Well, if the Fed is behind the curve, we need to consider asset sales. All right. Back to you, Sherman, with Paul Volcker. Oh, gee. <laughs> All right, over to you, uh, Zoltan. 
global growth engine for the next 10 years? Defense, onshoring, friendshoring, um, restocking and building commodity stockpiles, and cutting reliance on fossil fuels. More investment, less cons consumption. All right. And then uh, back to you, Sherman, with soft landing. Unlikely. All right. Uh, I think I heard unlikely there. Unlikely. And then the, all right. That's a confirm. Now the last one goes to you, Zoltan, to wrap us all up with 75 basis points. Not unlikely. All right. And that wraps up the Sherman Says part of the, the show. All right, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Zoltan Pajar, much appreciate your time today. For those of you that want to learn more about your writings and musings and just about things you do, how can they get a hold of you and get in touch with you? Well, uh, if, if, you are, if you are an institutional uh, investor, get in touch with your CS salesperson and they are going to put you on the distribution. Um, and I'm afraid that's the only way to get the research. All right. Well, uh, like they say, you know, they don't give Ferraris away for free, right? So you got to you got to pay something to get get access to it. So thanks again, Zoltan. We really appreciate you spending time with us. This has been the Sherman Show from April twenty fifth, twenty twenty two. Uh, you can get this on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, and all of the uh, great software out there that delivers podcasts. And stay tuned for the next episode coming in two weeks' time. Take care and good luck out there, everyone. of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without express written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefor, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any DoubleLine entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2021 DoubleLine Capital.